0: Since it takes everyone a little while to get to their seats, I'll <clears throat> say something that I say in every new members class. People are walking through these classes to see if indeed they, they want to join us, put their membership here, and I say to them, I promise that you will be loved, and I promise that you will not be loved perfectly. Um, and, uh, and both of those are true, and isn't it a blessing to be a part of a body where, though not loved perfectly, uh, you are loved our text this morning, we've been working through the book of Romans, is Romans chapter 6, verse 15, through verse 23. Romans 6, 15 through 23. If you've picked up one of the Red Bibles, uh, Romans six, fifteen is on page 943. Uh, 943. And I'm going to ask if you're able, one more time, if you would stand so that we might honor the reading of God's word this morning. Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and have been set free from sin. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness would you remain standing as we pray once more? Father, use your word, I pray powerfully this morning. In fact, I ask that your spirit would just work among us in a way that if any do not know you, their eyes would be open to the gospel for the first time, even now. Lord, I also pray for, for, for others who indeed know you, Lord, who, who may have found themselves struggling uh, in sin and maybe feeling like they don't know how to walk away from that. I pray that your word would work powerfully this morning to move us to obedience and sanctification. Even as the text says, empower me, I ask, by your spirit as I preach in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I want to try to answer some questions that I think may well have been lingering in our minds over the past week. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 6, 1 through 14, and, and one of the things we saw there is that the Bible doesn't just describe sin as a certain thought you have or word you speak or action you do that is out of line with the character of God and His goodness and His commands. But in addition to being that, yes, it's that, but in addition to being that, it's actually also this power that enslaves us so that Paul, at the very end of our text last week, could say, for sin will have no dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace. But he can say, for sin will have no dominion over you, meaning now as a believer, because he's making acknowledgment to the fact that it once did have dominion over you. You see, Paul can, can write something like to the Ephesians, and he did not have to know any of them individually. To be able to say, let me tell you who you were before you came to faith in Christ. You were dead in your sins. You were following the prince of the power of the air. You were, you were carrying out the passions of your flesh. You were carrying out the desires of your body and your mind. And you were by nature children of wrath. And the reason why he knew that of them is because of the way he ends that verse. Where he says, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul knows that everyone in Adam, everyone born of man is born in a condition since the fall in Genesis 3 where we have a sinful nature and we stand condemned before God. But this is where Paul brought up the good news. And the good news is this, that when Jesus Christ lived and died and was raised, because of that, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, here's what happens. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we're united with Jesus Christ by faith so that what he did counts for us. So Jesus Christ then died paying the penalty for sin and overcoming its power by being raised from the dead. And so Paul then says to us, listen, if you've been united with him by faith and you know what's happened in your life, you also have died to sin. And you've been raised to newness of life. So you no longer have to walk enslaved to sin. In fact, he, he says in verse 6, he, Jesus did this so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He says in verse 11, Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And therefore, his exhortation and my exhortation to us last week was, Therefore, you don't have to be a slave to sin. Consider yourself not enslaved to sin, free from sin, and walk in obedience to Christ. Now, since that time, though, there may be some questions in your mind, and if you weren't here with us last week, these questions may be in your mind anyway, because I think they're legitimate questions to ask, and the question may go something like this. Let's just suppose today, just, just, just suppose that today somebody walked into our service at 10.15. I mean, that's pretty reasonable, maybe 10.17. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so let's say somebody walked into our service at 10.15, and let's say they're not a believer. They don't know Christ. And in the midst of the service, we've been preaching the gospel in our singing and our praying, and even now we've mentioned the life, death, resurrection of Christ, that you can place your faith in him and have eternal life. And let's say, though, that then by the end of the service, someone who entered the service as an unbeliever actually comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And so we talk at the end of the service or whatever, and they say, I, I want to make my faith public through baptism. Well, here's the question. According to the Bible... 10:15 that person was enslaved to sin and according to the bible the moment they came to faith let's just say 11:30 the moment they came to faith at 11:30 they're now set free from that no longer enslaved to sin free to live unto god then the question is what happened right there what happened between who they were at 10.15 and who they are at 11.30, so that we say, enslaved to sin, 10.15. No longer enslaved to sin, free to live in righteousness, 11.30. What takes place within us so that that teaching of the Bible becomes a reality? That's one question. A second question you may have, again, even if you weren't here last week, that's a, that's a good question, isn't it? Um, a second question, though, you may have had in your mind since last week, and you may have it anyway, Now, even if you weren't here last week, is something like this. Okay, well, if I'm a believer, and I'm no longer enslaved to sin, but I'm free from sin, free to pursue righteousness, and so maybe last week, maybe this week, you've said, okay, I want to repent of sin, I want to walk away from it. And and you said, I know the text says, consider myself dead to sin and alive to God, but what do I do? What does it look like so that I, I pursue, that I turn from sin and pursue righteousness in a lifelong kind of way? I I don't want to do this for a week and then find myself right back where I was. How how does this work in a long-term way, right? So those are the questions that I want to try to answer this morning because I think the text answers those questions this morning. And Paul answers those questions by giving us, again, a lengthy argument in the text. But But he does, he gives us his lengthy argument by first asking a question. You'll see it there in verse 15. What then, he asks, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? So, so here's the question he's, he's dealing with. The question is, first of all, what does he mean by under law? What he means by under law is really exactly what we heard uh, John pray earlier. But under law, the whole world operates according to these elementary principles of the world. So that Paul can write to the Galatians, for example, he, he walked according to the elementary principles of the world when he was a Jew, and, and, the, and the Galatians, who may have been into all kinds of witchcraft, they walked according to the elementary principles of the world where they were pagans, so what do they have in common? Well, what the whole world has in common is this. We're born into the world, enslaved in our sin and under the condemnation of God. But there's this sense within us that, that, that wants to be justified, that wants to be declared to be in the right. And so we spend our lives doing in order that we may get life. And and, and for some people, the way that looks is they're... Flying airplanes into buildings, or, or putting on suicide vests. But but what they're doing in that is they're doing something that they convince they convince themselves is good and will give them life. And for others, they're you know doing stuff like going and visiting people in nursing homes, or giving money to the homeless, or, or things like this. You know, gifts to needy kids at Christmas. And but 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 whatever it looks like, these elementary principles of the world are really always lived out the same way, and they're lived out where you do and you do and you do, but you realize you cannot do enough. And so just living that way leaves you always in a place where you're under the condemnation of God, where the law is telling you you're not perfectly righteous. You're not perfectly righteous, so you're condemned. That's what it's like to live under the law. Well, Paul has said to us, listen, if you've placed your faith in Christ, that's not you anymore. If you've placed your faith in Christ, what you've done is you've come to a realization, I can't do enough. Remember, I I talked about earlier in the book of Romans that the difference, maybe a simplified difference, but a difference between the law and grace, between the law and faith is the difference between do and done. And so as a believer, you come to the point of saying, I cannot do enough, but I trust that what needs done has been done for me by Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He died to pay for my sins. He was raised from the dead. So I'm going to place my faith in him. And what happens then, you place your faith in Christ. His perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness is then credited to you. And then, instead of walking around saying, I'm condemned, I can't do enough, you walk around living a life that says, Christ has done everything for me. And now, instead of being an object of God's judgment, I'm an object of his grace. So that God looks at me and is just continually looking at me, pouring out his grace, his salvation. So and and, and none of that is dependent upon my performance, but on Christ's performance for me. That's what it means to live in grace. And so the question then does arise. Paul's question does have a certain logic to it, right? That you could imagine someone asking, okay, Paul, well, if I'm not under law and I am under grace, so that my standing isn't dependent on my performance, then, then shouldn't we just sin? Does it really matter? Let's just go on and sin like crazy. And Paul gives a short answer. It's there in 15. By no means. Then he gives a longer answer in verses 16 through 23. And that longer answer is I want to give this morning. I'm going to give that longer answer in a short time. Right? That's my promise. Okay. So here we go. Four points to Paul's argument. Number one. We are slaves of whatever we obey. There's no middle ground. We are slaves of whatever we obey, there's no middle ground. This is really the heart of Paul's argument. The reason why a believer shouldn't say, I'm under grace, and therefore, I guess sinning, I can just do it, it doesn't matter, is because sinning isn't just an action or word or thought, as we said earlier, but rather, whatever you obey, you're slaves to, and there's no middle ground. This is what Paul says in verse 16, His answered, by no means, why, why Paul, why no means, well, Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, let me just say this quickly. There in verse 16, Paul says, then slave of obedience. When you get down to verse 18, he's going to say slaves of righteousness. And then when you get to 22, he's going to say we become slaves of God. So slaves of obedience, slaves of righteousness, slaves of God on the one side, slaves of sin on the other. So if I just say slaves of God, I mean everything that Paul says by slaves of obedience, slaves of righteousness, uh, slaves of God. But but you see his point, it's very clear. His point is there's there's no middle ground. Um, You're a slave to whatever you obey. You're either obeying sin or you're obeying God. And and don't think that you can somehow stand in this position, kind of in a neutral position, above both being a slave of God or a slave of righteousness, a slave of obedience, and a slave of sin, and say, you know, I I think I'll just dabble in some obedience over here, and then I'll dabble in some sin over here. Paul says that that's not the way it works. God and sin, they're both masters who demand obedience. So sin demands more sin, and God, being obedient obedient to him, demands more obedience, now, Paul acknowledges, when he gets down to verse 19, he acknowledges in the first half of that verse, this analogy isn't perfect, right? He writes in verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. That is to say, I'm explaining something that I think is hard for you to understand, so that's why I'm using this analogy of slavery, but, it, but it's not perfect. It's, it's limited. In fact, Jesus said himself in John 15, 15, No longer do I call you slaves. For a slave does not know what his master's doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. So Jesus says, no, you're not slaves, you're friends. Paul knew that. He knew what Jesus had said. So he's saying here, listen, when I'm using this imagery of of being a slave of sin or a slave of God, I, I know it's not a perfect analogy. Jesus himself pointed out one way in which we're not slaves. We do know what our master's doing. But in another sense, Paul's saying, I'm using the analogy because there's something true about slavery that I want you to see. And what I want you to see is that sin demands more sin. And righteousness demands more righteousness. In fact, that's why he says at the end of that verse 19, I'm speaking to you in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and, note this next phrase, to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So you pursue lawlessness, sin's gonna take hold of you and lead to more lawlessness. Present yourself as a slave to Christ, he's gonna take hold of you and lead to greater sanctification. So this is Paul's first point in his argument. We're slaves of whatever we obey, there's no middle ground. Point two, our slavery takes place at the level of the heart. That is, our desires. Our slavery takes place at the level of the heart. That is, our desires. So, so if you're thinking to yourself, what, what do we mean by being enslaved to sin? How does that actually work? Right? This is the question we asked earlier, 10, 15, 11, 30. Remember this. So Paul's next point, I think, is that our slavery takes place at the level of the heart. And here's how he shows it. Notice what he says in verses 17 and verse 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That is, you become obedient to the things that Christ has commanded you. Verse 18. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So, So know what Paul's doing there. In these two sentences... He's, he's, or in these two verses, he's giving us a parallel here. On the one hand, verse 17, he says, "You were once slaves of sin." Okay, Paul. Well, well if, if we were once slaves of sin, that means we're not slaves of sin. Why aren't we slaves of sin anymore? What's well, because of what he says to begin verse 18? Having been set free from sin, the reason you were once slaves of sins, slaves to sin, i.e., no longer are, is because you've been set free. From sin, but he does the same thing with the other half of the argument in verse seventeen and eighteen. But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves to sin now notice a have become phrase, have become obedient from the heart. Paul, what what do you when you say that we become obedient to Christ from the heart? What do you mean? Look at the end of verse eighteen, and having been set free from sin. Here's another have become phrase, have become slaves. Of righteousness. In other words, here's what I think he's saying. If you want to know what I mean by being enslaved to righteousness or obedience or God, what I mean is that something has happened in your heart so that you're not just obeying externally, but you're obeying from within. Something has happened to your desires. What Paul is telling us, I think is that when we're converted, the Lord takes captive our hearts and our desires. Let me give you an illustration of this. There's a story that a young man one time came to Martin Luther, and the young man was doubting his salvation. He was doubting his assurance of salvation. And so he came to Luther, and he said, I'm just not sure I'm saved. And Luther, just being a wise pastor, said, all right, then i got a homework assignment for you. Tonight, I want you to go, and I want you to sin like crazy. If you could think of a sin, do it tonight. That's your task from your pastor, right? I mean, if I had a nickel for every time I said, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, right? (laughs) Um, So Luther, he says that. I'm sure the boys caught off guard a bit by this, what pastor tells a member of the church to do that. But he responds by saying, Dr. Luther, I can't do that. And Luther says, now ask yourself Why? Right? Luther's point was, you're doubting your conversion because you're looking at all these things. And what I want to show you is look at what God's done to your heart. He's taken your heart captive. He's taken hold of you so that he's changed your desires. That's what it means to be saved. This is what Paul is saying about these Roman believers. They become obedient, and not just in some external way, but they become obedient from their hearts. The Lord's actually done something to create in them new desires. Now, if I'm right about that, then we should see the same reality on the other side of the equation. That is to say, if being enslaved to righteousness means being having our hearts taken captive by Christ so that he's changed our desires, then it should mean that the way that we were once enslaved to sin was that we were enslaved to sin because sin took hold of our desires and corrupted them so that our desires were evil. I think that's exactly what we do see. Look back up at verse 12 in Romans 6. And notice what Paul says. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That word, I'm going to read a couple more verses in a second. The word's sometimes translated passions, sometimes desires. It's the same thing. Sin, he said, made you obey its desires. Was this just something that Paul mentions here or does he mention it elsewhere? Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, he's talking about who we were before we were converted and who we are now. And so he, his, his analogy he uses is the old man we were and the new man we are, right? So the 1015 man and the 1130 man, right? And here's what Paul says in Ephesians 4:22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. It's the same word right there in verse 12. It's not just Paul, Peter, 1 Peter 1:14. 1 do not be conformed to the passions or desires, same word, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, what what Paul is teaching us here, what Peter teaches, what the Bible teaches, is that before we were converted, we were enslaved to sin because sin took hold of our hearts so that we desired sin. You're not born into the world with some kind of neutral desires. You're born into the world slaves to sin because you desire sin. This is why the text that we heard read earlier from Galatians mentioned being enslaved through our desires and passions. So so we might say you were enslaved from within, right? It's not some kind of external enslavement. You were enslaved from within. Sin had your passions, your desires. What then happened so that you move from no longer being enslaved to sin to desiring obedience to God, to being a slave to righteousness? Well, what happened is the promise of the new covenant became a reality. Remember back in the old covenant, God promised he would do something in the new covenant. Here's what he promised, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. God said, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How does God cause a people to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules? The answer is not by some external means. Right? It's not like we're just going around going, I hate Jesus, I hate Jesus. Oh, it's like a tractor beam. Amazing grace. Right? That's not how it happens. right? You know that and I know that. It's not some kind of external pressure. right? What happens though is you place your faith in Jesus Christ and all of a sudden you go, something's happening inside of me. My desires have changed. Now, until the resurrection we won't be perfectly glorified. That's why Paul starts to get his exhortations. Don't let sin reign, right? But nonetheless, you can testify to this, can't you? Why is that? What's changing inside of you so that you're still tempted with sin, but you don't desire it in the same way you once did, and you do desire righteousness, or that when you do sin, it really begins to bother you? Well, what's going on is that God's taken out your old heart and given you a new heart and a new spirit and put his spirit within you so that he's beginning to enslave you to himself. That analogy, Paul acknowledges is weak, but imagine it in the best way possible. He begins to take captive your heart in a way so that you follow him and you obey from the heart. So our slavery takes place at the level of the heart. Point three. What's this then look like in our lives? Well, presenting ourselves as slaves to righteousness which is Paul's exhortation here. Presenting ourselves as slaves to righteousness then means cultivating and feeding those new desires. Presenting ourselves as slaves to righteousness, that's the exhortation Paul's going to do. Don't, do, no longer present yourselves as slaves to sin, but present yourself as slaves to righteousness. Well, the way that, the, what that looks like is it means cultivating and feeding those new desires. Again, now look at verse 19. Uh, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Again, that's where Paul acknowledges the analogy has some weaknesses. But for just as you once presented your members as as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to to, uh, sanctification. Now, that imagery, presenting your members as slaves to sin, or presenting your members as slaves to righteousness, is vivid imagery, isn't it? It almost has the appearance as if you're saying, I'm coming to you, Master, and I'm asking you to fashion my heart and my desires. And I'm presenting myself to sin, fashion my heart and my desires. I'm presenting myself to righteousness, to obedience to God, fashion my heart and my desires. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what we're doing when we sin. When we sin, we're cultivating and feeding and fashioning our hearts to desire sinful things. So you might compare it to if every time you eat, you finished your meal by eating a sugary donut, then what you're going to find after a while is that when you finish a meal, you're going to find a desire for a sugary donut, right? Because you've cultivated and you've fed that. Well, that's the same kind of thing that happens with us with sin. It, what happens is there are desires within us. So you know what? Sometimes sometimes you can pursue looking at pornographic images just because of lust. Sometimes you may well testify that the reason you struggled with that is because you just had this sense of loneliness. And you wanted to satisfy that loneliness and you pursued sin. And we could name the sins, right? But, but, but they come from this place of desires that we have cultivated. And so on the one hand, here's what I want you to do. Put off the old man fast, fast from those things. Starve those things. But that's not all. Fast, starve. And then on the other hand, I want you to cultivate and feed. Think of what God says through Jeremiah. He says anytime you sin, you're actually committing two sins. He illustrates what sin is by talking about a broken cistern that can't hold water it's just got shallow water it can't hold a bunch of water it's just got a little water maybe in the bottom it's a broken cistern it's leaking out it's nasty dirty shallow water and he says when you when you drink of that that's what sin is like it is fleeting pleasure it is shallow it is empty it is disappointing and he says when you pursue sin that's what you're getting but he said, but that's not the only wrong you're doing when you sin. The other side of it is you're, you're turning away from the fountain of living waters that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is saying, listen to the prophet Jeremiah, I want you to drink deep of me and all that you have in me. And so what I'm saying to you is do not only, yes, do this, do not go back to the broken cistern and drink the shallow, dirty water that leaves you Dying of thirst. Fast from that. starve that. But then turn and drink deep of Jesus Christ. Again, this is why Paul says, lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, you're cultivating and feeding. But on the other hand, righteousness leading to sanctification. As I said, until the resurrection will not be glorified. so yes, yes. You'll have somebody in your life who's going to get something nice, a new house or a new job or maybe some glory that you wanted. And yes, a desire for covetous may well rise up within you. But here's what you do in that moment. You put off and you put on. You fast and you feast, right? You say, I will not answer this desire for wanting more by coveting what my brother has. I'm going to turn from that and I'm going to feast on the fact that in Jesus Christ." I have everything. This is exactly what Paul tells the Corinthians. Remember the Corinthians, they were all divided? I follow Paul. I follow Peter. I follow Apollos. Well, the reason you say that kind of thing is because it boosts you. Right? I'm a Peter guy, so that elevates me. You think much of Peter, think much of me. Well, I'm a Paul guy then, so I'm better than you. And you know what Paul says? He says, listen, guys, put an end to this. In Jesus Christ, Paul is yours, and Peter is yours, and Apollos is yours, and the whole world is yours. So, quit drinking from the broken cistern of I'm with Paul and instead feed and feast on the fact that I have Christ right and and this is what the Christian life looks like putting off putting on putting to death cultivating godly living starve and feed fast and feast and then finally last point point number four don't miss that this carries eternal weight and significance. Don't miss that this carries eternal weight and significance. Now I'm going to read in a second verses 20 to 23 and make this argument, but I'll go ahead and say beforehand what we're going to see. What I'm saying is that what we do in regards to sin or righteousness is no small matter. As I said, you can't trifle with either one you're either going to become a slave to sin which is going to shape your desires and lead you to death and hell. So when when you read in this text that the wages of sin is death, notice that on the other side it's paralleled with eternal life. So so I think what Paul's paralleling here is this is a road that leads to damnation. And I'm telling you don't go on that road, but rather realize all you have in Christ, that you're justified, that he's declared you righteous and then pursue obedience. Here's what he says, verse 20 through 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. That's You had desires that, that desired sin. You didn't have desires for righteousness. The Lord saved you, and all of a sudden, you, you were no longer free in regards to righteousness. You became enslaved to it. Your, your heart was changed, and you desired it. And then he just says, now just think about the, the end result of each of these things. Verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at the time From the things of which you are now ashamed. The the end of those things is death. Paul said, just think back. When you were pursuing sin, what were you getting? And the answer is, you were getting nothing. In fact, as you look back, you're ashamed of those things. And not only do they leave you empty-handed, and only with shame, but the end is death. God will judge those who live their lives as enslaved to sin. But then he takes the other side. Verse 22 but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. So, you know, when God changes your heart, you begin to live in a way that honors the Lord and leads to eternal life. And then he reminds us in verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ Jesus our Lord. So when Paul ends, it's, it's great because he's, he's using, again, an analogy... You're enslaved to this. You pursue sin. You make sin your master. You're going to find its end is the judgment of God, death, and hell. You pursue righteousness and and being a slave to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to find in the end is life. But then he steps back and he wants you to go, but I don't mean, I do mean when you pursue sin, you're getting what you earned. It's wage. I did it. I earned judgment and death and hell. I don't mean that on the other side. Pursue righteousness, and remember, it's never what you earn. It's always the free gift. We stand in righteousness. This is so key. I am not saying to you this morning, pursue righteousness so that you can do enough to merit the Lord's approval. That's being under the law. You're under grace. What I am saying is because you're under grace and realize all you have in Christ Therefore, cultivate and feed treasure in Christ. When the desire for lust rises up within you, fast from that and feast on the fact that at the Lord's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Right? This is what practical day in and day out Christian living looks like. These may have been questions in your mind and my answer to those two questions at the start is simply 10.15 to 11.30. The Lord took captive his heart took out a heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, put a new spirit in him, and put the Lord's spirit in him. That's what changed. And what I'm saying to us is, if we want to cultivate long-term righteous obedience in our lives, we never take our eyes off the finished work of Christ. Jesus who lived and died and was raised for us, and that's why I'm righteous, you stay right there, and then you keep feeding and feasting on all you have in Christ. And out of that, then walk in obedience to him. But I want to say to you, if you're not a believer this morning, then then everything I've said about this picture, you can't fast and feast. You can't turn and delight until your eyes are first opened and you place your faith in Jesus Christ who lived and died and was raised. That's where this starts. Otherwise, your desires will never be altered. You'll be continually enslaved to sin. So my call to you this morning, if you're not a believer, is not turn from sin and start doing better. My call to you, if you're not a believer, is yes, turn from sin and then look to Jesus Christ who lived and died and was raised and place your faith in him and let him give you a new heart and new desires and then walk in obedience to him. If that's you this morning, if you want to place your faith in Jesus Christ, I would love to talk to you more after the service. One of our other pastors, your neighbor sitting beside you, probably would love to talk to you about that. And then the way you make that public is by being baptized. If you are a believer this morning and you've heard this word, And you say, yes, my heart this morning is to fast and to feast. Then is there any more perfect thing we can do to conclude our service this morning than by coming to the table? Literally, you get to take bread and take the cup of juice and eat it and drink of it, knowing it's a symbol it's a symbol of Christ's body which was given for you. It's a symbol of Christ's blood which was shed for you. But, but you get to tangibly take and, and, and feed on these things, remembering all that you have in Christ in whom you get to feast and feed and treasure. So this morning, if, if you're a believer and you're in good standing with an evangelical church, a good standing with a gospel-preaching church, I want to invite you to come to the table. The way we're going to do this, we're going to take a moment of silence. And in that moment of silence... The ushers will come forward. The musicians will get in place. You can use that moment of silence just to bow your head in prayer if you just want to respond to the word that you've heard this morning. But then what we're going to do is we're going to distribute the bread and the cup. And then we're all going to eat the bread together. And then we're all going to drink from the cup together, proclaiming together thanksgiving to the one who gave his life, shed his blood for us. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table this morning.